Happy New Year's Legal AF 2024 will be a busy year indeed. And we are closing out 2023 with lots of legal development. So let's get right into it. Donald Trump can't stop the E. Jean Carroll defamation case from going to trial in January. His attempt to stay a mandate by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals was denied in Donald Trump's attempt to exclude E. Jean Carroll's damages expert and Trump's request to add his own expert just a few weeks before the trial was, I would say, not only denied by federal judge Kaplan, but Trump was pretty much laughed out of court for blowing almost every single deadline. Trump is going to get hit with a massive judgment in January. I think a Giuliani-sized judgment in the next E. Jean Carroll trial. Also, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is plowing ahead with Donald Trump's appeal from the district court's denial of his motion to dismiss for his claimed absolute presidential immunity. Also, Jack Smith keeps on filing motions in that Washington, D.C. federal court even while the case is stayed, which is just driving Donald Trump and his legal team mad. Also, in addition to the briefs by the parties, we see some powerful amicus briefs or friend of the court briefs from outside entities being filed with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, including even one argument that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals really shouldn't even be having jurisdiction to hear Donald Trump's appeal on the issue of absolute presidential immunity at this stage and should just send it directly back to uh, the district court for trial without even getting to the merits. Also, let's talk Trump disqualification cases. Hey, no one saw, well, we saw it, but the main secretary of state, your legal efforts, you probably know about this stuff, the main secretary of state disqualified Donald Trump. This was done just by the Secretary of State, held a hearing, um, but this was not done through the court system in Maine. It now kind of goes through the court system after the Secretary of State reached that decision after the hearing before the Secretary of State. Then you have the Michigan Supreme Court, which decided it did not have jurisdiction, apparently, to hear anything about the 14th Amendment Section 3 disqualification challenges. And then going to Colorado, the Colorado Republican Party is appealing to the United States Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court decision to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot there. And then finally, you can't wrap up 2023 without talking about the shenanigans by Judge Eileen Cannon in the Southern District of Florida. She kind of closed out 2022 being overturned by the uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And as we close out 2023 on the other case that now Judge Cannon's assigned to the criminal Mar-a-Lago document case, you have Donald Trump asking Judge Cannon, can you just please ignore the Classified Information Procedure Act and pretty please just, I don't know, maybe let my attorneys just show up at the SEPA hearings, just, I don't know, because, and can you also ignore other basic legal principles? Will it backfire? We think it will. That's why they call her Judge Luce Eileen Cannon. We will talk more about this here on Legal AF Ben and Michael Popak. How you doing? 
I'm doing great. I cannot believe it's the end of a year. We would mo most people would be exhausted, but I think you and I and your brothers and Karen were exhilarated by where we are, where the needle is in justice right now against Donald Trump. And we're going to watch Ben, as you are in your hot takes and we are in Legal AF, this mismatch of resources, talent, experience, judicial prowess between those on the Trump side of the V and those on the other side. I did a hot take recently where I said, you've got on one side of this mismatch because Donald Trump can't retain a legitimate law firm in America, not one that's highly regarded anyway. Alina Haba, Chris Keis, Todd Blanche, and John Loro, lawyers that nobody on this podcast, even on this side of the camera, knew before Donald Trump had to hire them and their, and their staff. And I'll just be generous and say that's 10 total people, 10 total people. And on the other side, in all of the cases that we'll be talking about, many of which are hitting in January through the appellate process and at the Supreme Court level, the Department of Justice and the Special Counsel's Office, that's a couple of hundred people or more dedicated to this, the New York Attorney General's Office, which is another 50 to 75 people devoted to this, Fawny Willis's office in the Fulton County District Attorney, put another 100 over on that side of the V. And Robbie Kaplan, lawyer extraordinaire, friend of the podcast, and her extraordinary law firm that just knows an unbroken line of success related to Donald Trump. She's the one that's representing uh, E. Jean Carroll again. Put all of that set of talent and resources against these four and you're seeing why we're seeing exhausted intellectual thinking, no intellectual thinking that goes into the briefing. Because like the, that, like the boy in front of the dam with all the holes that has to stick his fingers in the dike, this is what we're seeing with these guys. They have to run around. We'll do, we're going to be exhausted by the end of the podcast just talking about January and what they have to do in civil, in criminal, in appeals, all hitting and timing at the same time while candidate Trump is going into primaries. A, a, I said at the end of one of my hot takes, I've been, and so have you, I've been at major firms, 2,000 lawyer firms. That law firm that I used to work at when I was a child would be, they would do an awesome job, but they would hard pressed, hard, they would be hard pressed to keep up with and keep at the high level of the upper margin of, of legal work if they had a client like Donald Trump that had all of these things hitting all at the same time, people would be working, associates would be working 24-hour shifts, dozens and dozens and dozens of them to do the work. You think that's what the law firm of Haba, Kais, Blanchard, and Lauro are doing? They're not. They're barely treading water. And what we, what you referred to at the beginning of the podcast about this pretty please, Judge Cannon, save us, that's just the gurgle, gurgle, gurgle of a trial team that is drowning under the onslaught of what is happening civil and criminally against these other resources that I just identified. You know, it's this very whiny, losery lawyering. And that's just one of the things I want to point out. Like, even if I vehemently disagree with uh, a legal argument on, on an opposing side, I can respect that it is a uh, intelligible argument and we could have a intellectual conversation. When it comes to Trump and his lawyers, it is the lowest of low-level lawyering where they even just miss the most basic deadlines. 
They don't assert affirmative defenses. They don't make the requests when you're supposed to make basic requests where you could simply say, Donald Trump hereby asserts affirmative uh, affirmative defense X or Y or Z or whatever it is. They don't do that. And then the judge calls them out for it. And then they go and they whine about it. Oh, it's a Clinton appointee. The judge is being so unfair. This is this is a travesty. You know, or if you want to talk about the New York Attorney General civil fraud case, for example, they start attacking the judge's law clerk. Like whoever gave a crap as a lawyer about a law clerk passing notes to a judge, which is part of the responsibilities of a law clerk. When you show up in a court as a lawyer, you're respectful to the court staff, you're respectful to the law clerk. It would never even cross my mind, even if the notes was somewhat distracting, that I'm going to devote my time to attack the law clerk. So after you keep attacking the law clerk and then there's a limited gag order put on you as a lawyer to just be a basic, decent human being and not attack the law clerk, and you go, they put it, they gagged me. I can't put on a defense. They gagged me. Like it's just the, it's the whininess. And look, we talk now about the Second Circuit Court of Appeals denying Donald Trump's to Donald Trump's attempt to stay the mandate when the Second Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Donald Trump and his lawyer, Lena Habba is the one representing him. They tried to assert absolute presidential immunity in this E. Jean Carroll case, which is scheduled for uh, trial uh, mid-January. Um, because the statements made by Donald Trump in this case relate to 2019 statements Donald Trump made during press conferences and other things uh, and other times while he was in office. But they hadn't asserted that defense for three years. And so the Second Circuit's like, you can't wait three years on affirmative defenses. You've waived that affirmative defense. And look, do I think Donald Trump would have prevailed on that affirmative defense? I don't know. It is a much harder analysis under the Nixon v. Fitzgerald line of absolute presidential immunity affirmative defense analysis than Donald Trump's conduct relating to the January 6th insurrection. Because as abhorrent and disgusting and despicable as Trump's statements were, um, about E. Jean Carroll. Remember, the Nixon v. Fitzgerald case gave Nixon immunity for engaging in a retaliatory uh, termination of an employee because they said that's within the province or scope of the outer limits of the presidency, even if horrible presidents hire and fire. So could I have possibly seen Michael Popak, even though I would disagree with it, and this is me trying to play devil's advocate here, the Supreme Court or the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, depending on the panel, saying, look, Donald Trump made that statement during a press conference. Press conferences are within the outer limits. Regardless of that, he said defamatory things. The press conference is what we're focusing on. But we, we but so it's so immunity applies there. But it doesn't matter. They didn't assert absolute presidential immunity. So it was waived. They couldn't even argue it. And then so Trump tries to stay that and, and then stay the mandate, meaning Trump wants the, the trial to be delayed and asks the Second Circuit, hey, can I have 90 days so I could go to the United States Supreme Court potentially, even though we just argued that the Supreme Court should not hear a direct appeal 
on the absolute presidential immunity in the context of criminal cases when Jack Smith was seeking that relief to the United States Supreme Court. And then Trump cites Jack Smith favorably. And the Second Circuit's like, no, you're going to trial. Go, go away from us. Denied. And then the day after that or two days after that, you have the district court uh, judge Kaplan, who's the trial judge uh, in in the next E. Jean Carroll trial, and he was the trial judge before, basically says, look, Donald Trump's trying to exclude Professor Humphreys, the expert uh, of E. Jean Carroll, by the way, the same expert, the professor at Northwestern University, who uh, was the expert for Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss in the damages case against Rudy Giuliani. Look what the judge said about Trump trying to exclude Humphreys. The deadline for filing in limine motions in this case was February 16, 2023. This in limine motion to exclude Professor Humphrey's testimony, E. Jean Carroll's expert, is 10 months too late, nor can the delay be excused on the basis of her revisions to the original report to exclude the June 24, 2019 statement from her damages calculation as the methodology on both her original opinions and her revised opinions are identical. And then Donald Trump wants to add this other expert. Right now, he's trying to add another expert. And then uh, the court says to Donald Trump and his lawyers, look, first, as the court already pointed out, defendants' lack of an expert witness at this point is entirely a product of Trump's own doing. Defendant Donald Trump knew in March 2023 that the other expert, Mr. Fisher, his original expert for both this case and the Carroll 2 case, had been foreclosed as a witness in the other E. Jean Carroll case on grounds very likely to be applied in this case. He could have read the handwriting on the wall and retained a new expert many months ago, even if only as backup, yet he failed to do so. He did nothing in this regard until he sought permission on November 2nd to add an unidentified new expert to testify to unspecified opinions on an unspecified basis, this suggesting very strongly that he had not yet found a new expert. He waited until December 13th, about a month before the long scheduled trial to surface with this new expert. I mean, Popak, can you break down for our listeners and viewers like that behavior right there? if, if, If you got out of law school in the first year and you did that, that would be like... A, a, a scarlet letter on your career. I, and I'm wearing a scarlet shirt. I have been meaning to talk to you and your brothers about a new podcast idea I have now that this is all the wave that Legal AF helped start. Um, I was thinking about HABA's mishaps and malpractice because, or just mishaps and malpractice of Trump lawyers. We could do a podcast on that. Oh my God. It, it, it has been <laughs> it's been remarkable to me. And I, I touched on it a little bit in my, my spiel at the beginning. We're just watching outmatched lawyers who even at the most fundamental level are making mistakes, any one of which would have sidelined you and me or anybody else in our careers. I mean, these are malpractice moments that should keep a lawyer up at night, but they're done repeatedly over and over. It's almost like an inexhaustible supply of legal malpractice by the lawyers for Donald Trump. There's no other way to put it. You and I and Karen were going back and forth and texting recently, just listing, and it went on forever, all of the mistakes that Alina Haba has made that has put her client into both feet into a hole. 
and and it just gets as if no one's going to notice. Federal judges notice when they when they try to come in and, and whine about something, they get reminded time and time again, either appellate judges or trial judges, that they have missed important deadlines. They have waived important defenses, and and all roads, at least for this part of our segment of the podcast, lead back to Alina Haba. I can't even lay it at the feet of Joe Tacopina. Coloring Joe, a uh, coloring book Joe, as I like to call him, in in the E. Jean Carroll case, because he came in ninety days before the trial of the first E. Jean Carroll case that he lost and took over from Alina Haba because, and we thought Alina Haba was like in a doghouse, doghouse that Trump even wasn't going to let her out of, but uh, but no, she still appears regularly as some sort of legal representative on various talk shows and 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 cupcake interviews on Newsmax and that kind of thing. What happened here is same thing that happened last time. Let me start from the beginning. <laughs> um, in all the cases involving Alina Haba, there's always a screw up. The reason that he is even not able to assert immunity, and I think based on what you just outlined, what we've talked about on Legal AF before, and the blasting game, the blasting game case that just came out in the DC Court of Appeals, which is the current prevailing law in the land until unless and until there's a different law made by the US Supreme Court or or otherwise, that there's no way he'd have presidential immunity, official act immunity for having defamed allegedly, E. Jean Carroll while he was president, that that is beyond the outer perimeter, even if you stretched it like silly putty, you know, beyond the reach of my my band, my my wingspan here. And, and, and then you plotted his conduct. It has to be outside the outer limits. You know, even Joe Tacopina, before he was Donald Trump's president, said that Donald Trump doesn't get to be the defamer in chief while he's president. This is before, I guess he was trying out to one day represent Donald Trump in the same case. So you have that. Second Circuit properly found, no. First of all, we're not even going to get there because your lawyer effed it up. This is my paraphrase. That's not exactly what they said at the Second Circuit. At the Second Circuit, what they said, and I think it was Judge Cabranes who wrote the opinion, he said, uh, you missed your deadline. You waited almost three years into three years into the case to raise the immunity. If you thought you had it, you probably had to do it. I'll just give you in the first year. <laughs> Not even like the first month. It should have been in the first month or two. First, first year, two years after the first year, that's when you get around. Sorry, it's waiver. And you can go take it up if you if you dare, and we'll talk about the dare part. If you dare. You can go take that up to the U.S. Supreme Court about whether you have absolute immunity related to this alleged defamation of E. Jean Carroll, in which you said she's a hoax. She's trying to shake you down. You don't know the woman. You know, she's not your type. When it's already been proven, of course, that you did rape her in a dressing room in 1996 in New York. So uh, we'll talk a little bit later. We'll, We'll table that for a minute about whether he does take that kind of appeal. I don't think so. And I don't think you do either, Ben. But so that happened. Alina Haba missed the deadline. She was in complete control of the case. Can't blame anybody else. She didn't raise that issue earlier. Now in the actual trial, we're going to trial on the 16th of January, E. Jean Carroll 2. Only about damages. Only about how big of a punitive damage award for, to punish Donald Trump combined with actual damages is the jury going to uh, award after they're going to be instructed that the judge has already determined as a matter of law that whatever Donald Trump said or did about E. Jean Carroll while he was president, it is defamatory. That there's no other, uh, you don't have to prove any other element like actual malice because she's not a public figure. And therefore, just focus on the damages. 
And just to focus on the damages, they're going to hear from experts, experts that have been re- that have been properly and timely disclosed by E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, um, Robbie Kaplan, on time. It's very important in federal court where I practice to to do things on time and don't miss deadlines. And and, and uh, because that's grounds alone to to deny the relief that you're seeking. Robbie Kaplan brought in Dr. Humphreys. We've known about Dr. Humphreys because she testified in the in the E. Jean Carroll case over the summer and gave the jury a range of damages that they basically adopted to rehabilitate E. Jean Carroll's reputation now damaged through uh, uh, defamation. This is the same as you touched on it. This is the same um, economic loss defamation expert that Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss used successfully against. Rudy Giuliani just two weeks ago, in which the jury also went along with Dr. She's a doctor, Dr. Humphreys, about the range of damages for each one of them to fix their uh, uh, defamation injuries at the hands of um, Rudy Giuliani. So she's a known quantity, Dr. Humphreys, and a successful one at that on the plaintiff's side. I'm sure she does some defense work as well. And she's been listed forever. In a, and last November, it's hard to believe. Last November, um, actually, no, sorry, last March, March, Donald Trump had the expert that he wanted to use against Dr. Humphreys stricken. Doctor, uh, I don't know who's a doctor, Robert Malkus, stricken, because under uh, expert standards that a judge uses in federal court, which we call Dalbert, under the Dalbert standard, this expert didn't make it because his methodology was all fakakta, that's another legal term, and all screwed up. And so the judge says, no, no, that, that expert's not an expert as far as I'm concerned. He's not coming in. So even then, they knew they lost their expert. When the E. Jean Carroll 2 case came up, they knew they had to get another expert, and yet they missed a series of deadlines. The judge says, as you read it, what did you wait for? You knew that, that Dr. Humphreys was going to update her damage model. This is all about an updated model to take out the amount of damages that have already been awarded in the first case so that there's not double recovery. So that's all she was going to do. No new methodology, same methodology. And it even goes a step than that, further than yeah, that. Profile. She was reducing the damages because one of the defamatory statements that was alleged was removed. So. Right. She had previously removed the other defamatory economic statements, but there was just one statement that was removed from the methodology. And that's where the judge was like, just one, it's one statement that was, that's different. And the focus is on the methodology hasn't changed. If the judge said to Trump, if she changes her methodology, I'll give you a shot at it for a new expert. She doesn't change her methodology and all she's doing is math. I'm not. So all she did was math. She subtracted out what you just identified, Ben. And then they came, oh, we need a new, we need a new expert. Oh, doc, new expert. And the judge said, no, not only am I not striking her, she's going back on. And good luck to you with the new jury. But I'm not giving you an expert. So they have, think about this from a, from a trial lawyer standpoint, Ben, that you are. And, and we can, you know, as we're painting the picture for the, our audience, they're going to go into a jury. E. Jean Carroll's going to testify very compellingly, very authentically about all the damage that's happened to her and why punitive damages are appropriate. In addition, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer has already identified statements and testimony that Donald Trump made in the civil fraud case, talking about bringing it back around, about his wealth 
that they're going to use under oath that they're going to use in this trial to go to the punitive damage amount. Sure, you're a big shot. You think you're worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. You think Mar-a-Lago is worth a billion dollars? Great. That's going to go to this jury for the size of the punitive damage amount. Good job. So it didn't work in the civil fraud case because the judge isn't buying it, but it is going to be used as sworn testimony against Donald Trump about the size of his wallet, which is exactly what the jury is going to focus on. And then there's no counter expert. So you got the expert for E. Jean Carroll. E. Jean Carroll, these statements by Donald Trump about his wealth, normally you, you, you know, the jury would look to the back for the door to open and an expert to come in for Donald Trump. No expert. And then they're going to go deliberate about how big of a check to write against Donald Trump in favor of E. Jean Carroll. You have a number in mind, don't you, for that? Well, look, I, th- I think it's going to be over 10 million. I think it'll be, I think it could be 50, 100 million. I, I think you could have a runaway jury here that hears the fact that the day after E. Jean Carroll prevailed and Trump was found to have raped her civil rape, sexually abused her, rape, uh, and defamed her. Donald Trump went on CNN and did that so-called town hall and then started lying about her again in front of millions of people. And how much money did he raise, Ben? How much money did he raise on the back of E. Jean Carroll and lying about her? Isn't that a measure of damage for the jury? Well, I think they're going to hear about that, in yeah, with punitive damages. And this is why you need to make a statement. You need to punish him. There's no other way to make him stop. And then one of the things we'll see also is will Judge Kaplan entertain what we're now seeing in the Giuliani uh, uh, case where Ruby Freeman and Shamos filed another lawsuit for injunctive relief, basically saying if he's going to keep on defaming, if Giuliani is going to keep on defaming Freeman and Moss after uh, the verdict, he's going to have to be held in contempt. There has to be some other remedy to stop these grifters from raising money off destroying people's lives. Let me me ask you a question because you follow the social media aspect closer than I do, especially outside the law stuff. Since the Giuliani getting sued again and the injunction issue, and since this trial is about to come up in that period, has Donald Trump and his minions piped down about E. Jean Carroll? No, no, okay. I mean, he, no, okay. no. They, 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 they. It's the same. Okay. You know, every now and then you'll get. I mean, I think in the past month there was a post that Donald okay. Trump made and and about E. Jean Carroll. Uh, over, it's over and over again on his social media platform, and I think Trump will just keep on ramping it up. But and 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 here's and here's the thing too. When they lose, when they get sanctioned, it's the political action committees that they grift off of the followers that then pays the sanctions. And then you have Alina Haba who gives these speeches at these events bragging about being sanctioned a million dollars. Now, if I was sanctioned a million dollars for bringing a frivolous lawsuit as as a lawyer, a normal lawyer would be wouldn't I? I wouldn't want to show my face around the legal community. Like I, I, I would I would have so much shame that I did that, and I would need to work really hard to regain. Try. I mean, I, I, I can't fathom that ever that ever happening. She then runs around and brags about it like that's a good thing. And, and and one of the points we make over and over again on on Legal AF is 
in trying to give the weight to different legal arguments and and try to filter it through this objective lens that that we try to bring it is not we're not politicizing issues when we say that a lawyer who brags about being sanctioned a million dollars for filing a patently frivolous case is a shameful lawyer when we criticize that that's not us politicizing these issues it's just it's just calling it is it is what it is and you know they politicize it when they go oh i was sanctioned because of this no you're sanctioned because you had zero facts you didn't even plead causes of action the right way you got multiple chances by the judge to just dismiss it without being sanctioned yet you persisted in filing completely baseless accusations you blow every deadlines you don't participate in discovery you make a mockery of the legal system and our legal system then looks at that and 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 rent and renders and enters accountability that's what's that's what's happening speaking of accountability though popak i want to talk about What's going on with the absolute presidential immunity appeal? The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is plowing ahead there. Um, they issued the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued an order setting the time frame for uh, oral arguments on January 9th. The final briefing, uh, if you will. So you had uh, you had Trump's brief December 23rd. Jack Smith's brief, December 30th, and then you have Trump's reply, January 2nd. On January 9th, you'll have oral argument. I want to hear your prediction, Popak, of when you think there will be a ruling by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I, I think it'll be very quickly. And let's talk, let's do the roundup of these disqualification cases, uh, where we think they are headed, and we'll finish up with some Judge Eileen Cannon news. Let's take a quick break. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account? You have no idea where it's going? Well, I know. It's all those subscriptions. Think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, parenting apps, it's endless. I'm guilty of it. So I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on. And I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash legal AF. That's rocketmoney.com slash legal AF. Rocketmoney.com slash legal AF. So Michael Popak, great ad read first and foremost. Uh, <laughs> We are headed towards, uh, you know, I, I think a prompt adjudication of this appeal by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I know last uh, week and last episode, a lot of people saying, oh, the Supreme Court denied special counsel Jack Smith's petition for certiorari or direct appeal. And you and I were saying, I get why the Supreme Court did that now. We'll have to see what the Supreme Court does after it goes through the normal process. I mean, Jack Smith was being as aggressive 
as you can be there and trying that direct appeal with the Supreme Court and saying, I don't even want to go through the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I think the Supreme Court looked at how fast the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was moving. When Jack Smith made that request to the Supreme Court to hear it on a direct basis, the D.C. Circuit had not set that super expedited schedule, you know, either. So I think the Supreme Court said, look, the D.C. Circuit's going to have oral argument on January 9th. You got Trump's brief December 23rd. You've got Jack Smith's brief December 30th. You got Trump's reply January 2nd. Look, I think the Supreme Court said, what, what we're going to hear this during, you know, Christmas and the New Year's. No, we're not going to hear it anyway during that time period. And so the D.C. Circuit's doing their work. Let's let them hear all of these arguments first and and then we'll hear it and, and look that kind of patience i know when our democracy is on the line to be like well give it 30 more days or give it 44 five more days 45 more days every one of those days feels um like like a miss if donald trump's not being held accountable so i i totally get that but popak just think about all the powerful arguments we're hearing now not even just from jack smith um uh, not in Jack Smith's team, but from these, you know, amicus briefs that are being filed by these outside groups. You know, you had a very, you, you had a few major ones, lots of Republican, former Republican groups coming together. Um, you had the former White House uh, top lawyer, Ty Cobb. You know, he, he'd he be the one who would be asserting absolute presidential immunity. So when you have the former White House lawyer, the, the top lawyer at the White House, Ty Cobb, join a brief, an amicus brief, saying that there is no absolute presidential immunity. Um, that's powerful. But then there was this other one that that, that kind of snuck up on me, and, and I didn't even think through this argument. But when I read it, I was like, that's a pretty interesting argument. The group's called American Oversight. They're represented by uh, top law firm Arnold Porter K. Scholler. I, I didn't realize that Arnold and Porter and K. and Scholler merged uh, back in 2017. I still thought they were two different firms, but they're one firm, Arnold, Arnold and Porter, uh, K. Scholler. Uh, and they basically argue there's no jurisdiction for this appeal at all. And they say, look, there's this case called Midland Asphalt, 1989 case. Justice Scalia, right-wing justice, since passed away, strict textualist. And Justice Scalia in Midland Asphalt said, you can't take these interlocutory appeals, these appeals in the middle of the case, that's what an interlocutory appeals, on a what's called a collateral order and uh, not a final order, an order that's in the middle of the case. Um, he, he says, uh, Justice Scalia said, unless there's some strict textual support for the immunity or, or, or grounds for this interlocutory appeal in the Constitution or in a statute. And so American Oversight says Donald Trump's absolute presidential immunity argument tries to take this bizarre contorted negative inference of the impeachment judgment clause, arguing that because there wasn't a conviction in the Senate, that therefore he's not entitled to um, therefore, he is entitled to uh, absolute presidential immunity. But American Oversight says, even if you accept his argument has some basis in, in logic, which it doesn't, that's not in the Constitution and there's no statute. So therefore, you need to address those issues, D.C. Circuit, after a conviction. This should not be an interlocutory basis. And you know why I find that interesting, that argument so interesting and why I said – 
this is why I am kind of glad that the Supreme Court did show a little patience as well, even though I'm sure this argument would have just been made on an amicus brief to this Supreme Court, but why no one's being hasty here, you know, and and and, and are addressing these issues. The Supreme Court has a doctrine that's called uh, kind of constitutional avoidance, right? Where they where if they can avoid a major constitutional crisis through some other grounds, they may not address the issue right away. And so if there truly is a procedural ground to say there's no jurisdiction over this, bring this back to us after there's a conviction, that could be a way the Supreme Court can can look at this too, or the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals can look at it too. Of course, then you get to the merits on whether absolute presidential immunity applies, and then you go through your Judge Tanya Chutkin analysis of the doctrine simply doesn't exist in criminal cases, or you could go to your fallback of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision in Blassingame that it falls outside the outer perimeter because it involves interfering with the state's rights to oversee their own elections. What, what, what do you make of all of this, Popak? And then I think it's a good segue just to jump right into disqualification. Yeah. Uh, look, as we expected, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to jump in with two hands and two feet about all things Donald Trump, whether he's going to be on the ballot or not. And we'll talk about that in the next segment or bleed into it. And what's going to happen with the application of immunity for him um, and how quickly they're going to make that decision and who's going to make that decision. So just to bring it full circle, you outlined really um, uh, efficiently the briefing schedule. Got a briefing schedule. It's going to make it all timed out. So by the 9th of January, the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is the right place for the appellate decision to first be made by a three-judge panel there, Judge Pan. Judge Childs and the other judge who's appointed by George W. Bush. Um, And the Supreme Court wasn't uh, patting Donald Trump on the back when two weeks ago it said to Jack Smith, yeah, we're going to let this come up the normal course. We're not interested in doing a direct appeal on this. We understand it's an extraordinary matter and it's an extraordinary issue, but it needs to go the normal course. I'm summarizing their thought process. It it ended up in a one-line opinion. And people who don't know better jumped up and down and said, oh, win for Trump. It'll slow down the winds of justice. It, it's not. It's not. Because it will be if we, if what happens happens the way we think it will. In that after the ninth of oral argument, within three days, 72 hours, I believe, I think you do too, that there's going to be a ruling by that panel. And it's going to be against Donald Trump. They're not going to stand. They're not going to set new precedent for the next 250 years of our republic, that a president in office can commit crimes, and that goes without any um, crim- any criminal justice process to address, that he can just get away with the murder if he wants. That's not going to be, I don't believe, the jurisprudence is going to be established um, in, you know, by, uh, in the next three weeks by this panel. And then once he loses that absolute immunity, there is no absolute or official act immunity for a president while in office against an indictment. And this is, goes back to your original point about um, this new amicus brief that we'll talk a little bit more about by American oversight. Also has to do with timing. The, the, the case that we like talking about that happened in the last two weeks that gets now cited over and over again as the momentum of that precedent takes over, the Blassingame case stands for the proposition that at the motion to dismiss phase, at the very beginning of a lawsuit, before the pleadings are closed, before the trial, it's not the right time, especially in Donald Trump's case, to to find that there's absolute immunity at the outer limits of presidential, outer perimeter of presidential acts at that moment. 
maybe we'll see what happens during a trial. They'll revisit the issue. But they've also laid out the framework in Blasting Game that it would be an extraordinary turn of events if the evidence at trial showed us that your acts were within the outer perimeter of presidential authority related to the incitement of the riot that led to personal injury and damage and other things in the civil cases that are pending before Donald Trump. But it is a motion to dismiss moment in time in that case. Similarly here, we haven't done, obviously, the trial of Donald Trump, although we're all chomping at the bit to get there. No evidence has been adduced. No witnesses have been presented. No sentence, no conviction, no sentencing. It's early. It's at the indictment phase. The question is, on the indict face of the indictment, and this is what Judge Chutkin, the trial judge, said originally. She says, I- I'm limited here. The four corners of the indictment have to be taken for, for true for the purposes of this motion. Everything in there has to be assumed to be true. And then you're asking me whether there's an absolute immunity, no matter what is written in there effectively, that you won't have to stand at, you, you won't have to stand in a criminal trial uh, for your charges. And I'm not doing that. And that's where at this juncture, at the indictment level, I don't believe the DC Court of Appeals three-judge panel is going to do that either. By the time Donald Trump gets to the Supreme Court through the road of going through Chief Judge John Roberts first, because he's the judge that sits over the DC Court of Appeals, and he's the one that's going to make the decision whether there should be a stay, a continued stay of the trial of Donald Trump in the DC DC, uh, courts that are scheduled for March or not, or he's going to turn it over to the full nine justice panel to see if there's going to be a stay and or what the briefing schedule is going to be around the issue. They control, the Supreme Court controls completely their docket. There's no rule book. There's no owner's manual. They decide. They want to do it in 72 hours. They'll do the whole thing in 72 hours like they did in Bush versus Gore. They want to do it in 72 days, 72 weeks. Whatever it is, is going to be up to them. Now, of course, by by this logistics timing of briefing calendar, they're signaling what they want to do with the case or how important they see it. If they don't want to interfere with the March trial, they can they can either take the case up, rule on it quickly, and rule against Donald Trump coming up from the appeal from the D.C. Court of Appeals that will have ruled against him. So he's already got a foot in the bucket. Or they could just say, this is very, very interesting and fascinating. We want full briefing and oral argument. We'll see everybody in July or June. And they're like, wait, the trial's in March. Exactly. But we'll see you after March. Let us know how that turns out. Now, that now dovetails into this amicus, this friends of the brief, the friends of the court brief that's been filed. It hasn't been accepted yet by the court, meaning the D.C. Court of Appeals has the right to accept or reject. They get dozens of amicus briefs. Some of them are like real crackpot briefs, um, you know, obviously not helpful to their decision making. But some of them, like the two you've identified, one they've already accepted, you know, five Republican lawyers and senior officials from five Republican administrations. That was the title of the one brief that got accepted. They want to hear from that group. And we'll talk about a little bit about their Second Amendment or their uh, their um, their Article Two um, analysis of the presidency and why this particular crime that's been charged can't possibly be something for which somebody has immunity. That's a very unique argument. We'll we'll you and I are bouncing around in a minute. And then there's this other brief that we both liked a lot by American Oversight. This not-for-profit brought by this great law firm, Arlington Porter, in which they say, uh, 
there's only a couple of immunities that fit the bill for having what's called an interlocutory appeal, meaning in the middle of the case before there's even a trial. You don't normally get an appellate right. You don't have a right to an appeal. And they're arguing that the D.C. Court of Appeals doesn't even have jurisdiction, appellate jurisdiction to hear this issue on an interlocutory or before final verdict and sentencing uh, posture at all. Why? Because under the precedent of the of, of Supreme Court precedent, right, law that's been developed since 1989 in the U.S. Supreme Court, you don't take that issue. Immunity is not an interlocutory appellate issue before a trial, to stop a trial, unless there is express textual provisions and explicit guarantee of no trial, right? Um, And that if that's the case, then we want to hear that now before a trial. If it's not the case, even if it's labeled immunity, do the trial, see if you get convicted, see if you get sentenced, come back and talk to us. And there's only, apparently there's only two, as you alluded to, there's only two constitutional guarantees to uh, avoid a trial if you have immunity, that's double jeopardy and speech and debate clause. If you've already been tried for a crime in a court of law, you can't be tried again, and we're not going to put you through another trial and then tell you, yep, you were right, you shouldn't have had that second trial. We're going to do that early on an interlocutory appeal, therefore appellate jurisdiction. Speech and debate, you you are a part of the House or the Senate, and you are doing your function as part of your lawmaking, your rulemaking, not something else, not campaigning, not interfering with the presidential election, but you're doing legitimate speech and debate, trying to get to the bottom, fact-finding around that, great. You can't be sued for that. You can't be prosecuted for that, state or federally, and we're not going to wait till the end of the trial to find out whether we were right or wrong. We're going to tell you right now whether you have immunity or not. But those are the only two. And what doesn't fall into that? this homemade presidential immunity that finds no place in the Constitution and isn't guaranteed anywhere. So their argument is, judges, back out. Let the trial happen in March. Let's see what happens. If he loses, he can come back with the evidence that's been adduced on the record and developed by the finders of fact, the jury, and the judge as the lawgiver, and then we'll come back and revisit it. Now, they haven't accepted that brief yet, but if they do, which has not been argued by Jack Smith's team, not been argued by the lawyers of the team, not been briefed. Doesn't mean it can't enter the deliberations, if you will, of the judge. And certainly maybe could travel again to the U.S. Supreme Court, along with the other amicus brief, if the U.S. Well, not if, when the U.S. Supreme Court takes this issue one way or the other. We'll know that but towards the end of January. And again, I'll leave it on this. If the U.S. Supreme Court wants to definitively, definitively snub this issue out, or, or uh, reward Donald Trump for criminal activity, they'll make, they can make that decision as early as the end of January, beginning of February, keeping the March trial on track. And I'll leave it, I'll leave it on this, Ben. If Donald Trump's lawyers outmatched and outwitted and outresourced and outthought and outprepared think that they're going to get away with turning to Judge Chutkin after they lose the series of things that you and I just talked about and saying, Judge, we haven't been preparing for the trial because it's been stayed. And so we, we need more time. Forget it. They have, they have an obligation to prepare for the trial, whether it's been quote unquote stayed or not, so that if it's the stay pin is taken out and this case goes to trial in March, they are ready. They are not going to be able to get away in front of this judge, nor will it be proper grounds for appeal to say that we've been sitting around 
and we stopped preparing a month ago because we thought we were right on our appellate arguments. Forget it. If the appellate court, if these court of appeals doesn't grant a stay and neither does the Supreme Court and or they rule definitively against Donald Trump, this trial starts in March, whether whether uh, Kais and Blanche and Laura or, or Haba are ready or not. And I like that Jack Smith is being aggressive, though. I like that Jack Smith is making Donald Trump respond and and declare positions about where Trump stands on issues. Like we all know now as the public that Donald Trump is saying, if you accept everything Jack Smith says as true in the indictment about the conduct Trump engaged in, and by the way, I accept it as true because it's very, very, very uh, detailed. It gives very specific dates and times. And we all saw what happened with our own eyes or we heard about it or we learned about it. Donald Trump says, I am still immune. I have the powers of a king. That's what Donald Trump's argument is. So Jack Smith goes, okay, king, okay, you think you have the power of a king? Why don't we ask the Supreme Court? And then what does Donald Trump say? No, 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 they shouldn't hear it right now. No, 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 Let, let's let's delay that. Again, it is, it is as a lawyer, as a uh, American citizen, as, as, as just a, a, a lover of worldwide democracy, the behavior, Popak, over and over again, is just whiny, loserish, kind of victim, just weak behavior by Trump and his lawyers. And it's just like the constant whining and coming up with excuses versus like, you know, own it or don't own it. <laughs> you know, if you did it, then 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 prove then prove your innocence. You know, but it's always nah, I'm immune, or let's just delay it and let's wait. And and it's that type of just behavior. That to me is is so abhorrent as as a lawyer and just as a as a human being. And, and to your point, Popak, Jack Smith keeps filing documents. He just filed a, a a motion in limine. Donald Trump doesn't have to respond to it until the stay is ultimately lifted. Filed a motion in limine, and then I saw Alina Haba go on and call the motion in limine a gag order and said they are trying to gag us with this motion. Like Popak, a motion in limine is filed in every federal or civil criminal civil case, I mean, state court cases. It's a pretrial motion to uh, narrow the issues that go before the jury so that it's only admissible evidence going before the jury. Like I Alina Haba, I saw her on Yeah, I saw Haba acting like they're trying to gag us. No, they're filing a standard pretrial motion. You get to file your own standard pretrial motion eliminates. You can file oppositions and the court will determine it's got to be relevant, admissible evidence that goes before that goes before a jury, and it's kind of probative and relevant value can't be outweighed by its prejudicial nature. These are standard filings <laughs> that they act like. Oh my gosh, it's a gag order. No, it's it's a motion eliminate. We we started the podcast with my observation that we're going to start a new pod, Legal AF Mishaps and Malpractice by Donald Trump and his lawyers, na namely Alina Haba. Frankly, to hear Alina Haba comment and give her color commentary on federal practice is reminds me, I think I used this once on Legal AF. I mean, there's an old joke about you can teach a monkey how to roller skate, but why? <laughs> and, it's like, what? and it's like watching Haba, uh, they just push her out there to make these ridiculous pronouncements of, of legal concepts of which she is not familiar. 
And and and, and again, I just want because I know people, and we don't do it for this reason, but people do take I think a tremendous amount of confidence and comfort from when you and I and Karen uh, break down the law and give our um, legitimate opinions about. Um, an analysis about why and how things are going to turn out. And we're fortunately, because we're, we're good at this, we get it right. But our comments about, um, about uh, the outcomes, I think are important because we talk about it from pro- projecting ourselves into the court process and proceedings. We get inside and under the hood of the court filings, the docket. We get inside the courtroom. Either we get a live feed that we can comment on or transcripts after the fact, or we have somebody in the room that we rely on or trust that gives us the information that we need, a feed that we need in order to do the analysis. And and the reason we do that is because what goes on in what I like to refer to as the wood paneled rooms of the courtroom is a completely different universe of which these Trump lawyers are are not familiar uh, that compared to what goes on on Newsmax or rallies or or social media posts or whatever else that there is not I can't tell the public and our audience there's no greater um variance or distinction between the world that you and I reside in in the court system and the world that goes outside and you can get close you can go on the courthouse steps and stay goof and say goofy things you can get even into the hallway in front of the wooden door and say goofy things that get you gagged or or contempt charges against you but when you're inside the courtroom it's evidence evidence based fact based witness based and and just think about the parade of witnesses the 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 uh, the wealth the of witnesses that that um that Jack Smith and the others are have put or will put on against Donald Trump. I joked on a hot take that he could spend three weeks and just put on former lawyers, some disbarred and or convicted of Donald Trump against him. Then after if the jury doesn't find that compelling, all these lawyers testifying against their client, their former client, including notes that they took at the at the time, wait till they bring in uh, all the senior Republican officials, starting with the vice president of the United States, the attorney general, not one, but two attorney generals of the United States, the White House counsel of the United States, you know, and then all the people that were flies on the wall who were intimately involved with all the decision making watching, like Cassidy Hutchinson and, 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 and the rest. Sure, well, they're still flipping witnesses. They're still flipping defendants. Don't get me wrong. Mike Roman, we'll talk about him later. Mike Roman better flip on Donald Trump or he's going to go down the drain. But just think about the trial inside the wood paneling. The rest of this stuff, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Ignore that. Ignore that. It's what goes on behind the screen that matters to justice, not this other charade. Well, you know, to your point, when Alina Habba was having oral argument before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, they asked her, how does this relate to the Blasingame uh, decision? And she goes, I need to look through my notes. Uh, what, what, what's, what's that? The, the Blasingame case? Oh, I, I don't seem to know uh, that decision. But I do want to talk about uh, the Nixon v. Fitzgerald case. 
It's a blasting game v. Trump, Alina Haba. It's your case. And it's you're on immunity. You're arguing about immunity. You better know every case up to the minute about immunity. Maybe the one that was released two weeks before or a week before (laughs) the oral argument that relates to your client. Maybe that would be something that you should know. Let's talk about these disqualification uh, cases where they are all at. Michigan Supreme Court uh, saying they don't have jurisdiction to hear disqualification challenges. The Colorado Supreme Court decision disqualifying Donald Trump and that Supreme Court decision was appealed to the United States Supreme Court by Uh, the Colorado Republican Party. Notably, Donald Trump has not filed his petition for certiorari yet, I guess, waiting again to the last minute there. And then you had the Secretary of State of Maine, and this surprised many. You know, she held a hearing, though, December 15th, and thereafter just said, look, I'm being asked to reach a decision as a Secretary of State. Is the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, self-enforcing? I think it is. Was January 6th an insurrection? I think it is. Was Donald Trump uh, involved in that? I think he was. Um, Is Donald Trump an officer? I think he is. So what do you want me to do? (laughs) That's basically what the Secretary of State said. I have to render this decision. It seems pretty clear to me. And that's the decision. So I'm saying that Donald Trump is disqualified. That's my role as the Secretary of State. I I, I don't do this lightly. I understand the, that no secretary of state has done this, but I feel I'm duty bound to to follow what the the law is. Donald Trump immediately, you know, puts her contact information to the public so she can receive death threats because that's how MAGA um, responds to things. Her uh, decision, like the Colorado Supreme Court decision, is stayed pending, you know, kind of a further judicial process. In uh, Maine, it will now go through uh, the kind of court system after to see if she uh, acted within, I guess, the appropriate scope of her authority. It'll go through the Maine courts, and then ultimately, you know, that could be consolidated before uh, the Supreme Court. But I want to get your take on it. I'll just share this one tidbit. The reason that we're here, though, in the first place is we should never be here in the first place. The only people who are politicizing this issue, frankly, in, in, in my view, is today's modern day Republican Party, the modern Republican Party, the MAGA, because you have great former Republicans or now I guess called rhinos and constitutional scholars like Judge Ludwig and others, uh, you know, strict textualists and, and, and people who are, you know, formerly with the Federalist Society or still consider themselves Federalist Society members who look at it and say, here's, here's just what it says. The problem is we've have in Donald Trump and an entire political party, and I think the the framers of this specific amendment and the kind of Reconstruction era did not contemplate that you could have an insurrection. We could all see an insurrection take place, yet the major political parties will rally around the insurrection and the insurrectionist and support it as a legitimate, political, peaceful, patriotic event that's taking place. So therefore, if you oppose that, that's somehow, you know, you're politicizing it and you are, uh, you know, you, you know, you, you are overreaching your kind of, you know, jurisdiction if you're a secretary of state doing this. But I think Popak, I mean, common sense informs and if if strict textualism, if our constitution matters, you know, and the other provisions matter, I mean, I don't know, it's, it says what it says. That's it. It says what it says. And Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection, and and it shouldn't be hard, but you do have, and I think this is the 
kind of the saddest state of, of, of our country right now. The Republican Party, MAGA, which it is now, because I think the Republican Party pretty much is dead, supports this as, you know, their day. That that that's their rallying call. And so when you call it what it is, it's like, oh, you are attacking us. No, I mean, just you, you try to overthrow our, our government. I mean, you try to overthrow our democracy. Like we all we all saw what went down. Hope I maybe take us through some of these yeah. disqualifications. Yeah. Colorado, um, four to three, of course, finding under the uniqueness of Colorado law. Actually, let me take the plane up 5,000 feet and look down for a minute. In our system of federalism, states, individual states and their individual statutes and their individual secretary of states have a role to play in who becomes our president. That might seem odd to people, especially from those outside of the United States, but that's one of the bargains that we have baked into federalism. There's federal government and federal practice and federal law and federal agencies, and then there's state by state. And one of the ways that we were able to put together this great United States is because of the compromise between state, uh, large states and small states and how to put fit them all together and have any kind of power and, and you know electoral college on, versus popular vote and that kind of fight. But every state individually, based on its own unique statutes, determines how somebody's going to vote, when they're going to vote, how they're going to vote, what kind of ballot they're going to use, who's going to certify that, how that person got appointed or elected to the position, um, uh, absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, using boxes, no boxes, early voting, no early voting. That's why if you're in one state and I'm in another, Ben, I probably use a different ballot than you. I, I voted at a different time than you. I may have had the benefit of early voting. You might have had a longer early voting period. I might have been able to drop my ballot off at a box. You may not have been able to. And and some people outside the country is like, what are you talking about? Why isn't it just like an ATM machine? Everybody shows up at nine to whatever over a week period and votes. Yeah, that would be if you want to not suppress the vote and you wanted everyone in your country to vote. That's why in other European countries, you see voter turnout at like 70% because they make it really easy and they don't put barriers to entry and barriers to voting. So you have that system. And some, most states, the Secretary of State is the one uh, through the statutes that it's empowered to do many, many of the things, and then it devolves down to clerks uh, and of the various counties or other municipal uh, things. That's that. Then you got Congress and the Constitution that federally sets certain requirements uh, uh, and um, uh, and statutory provisions related to the presidential election. But everything else, time, place, manner. Voting, ballot, that's all state stuff. And we've had a long line of, of, of Supreme Court precedent that says exactly that, including some that has been cited by and used by people that are currently on the U.S. Supreme Court, like Neil Gorsuch, who, when he sat on the Tenth Circuit, had a very similar case about president, a presidential candidate being barred from a ballot. And, and, and it's called the Hassan case. And, and Gorsuch, before he was a Supreme Court justice, said, hands off. It's a state-by-state state issue. It's a state power issue. It's not a federal issue. They can decide. Now they're going to have to decide this issue. At the Supreme Court level, through the Colorado case, maybe the main case, they're going to have to, uh, the Supreme Court's going to have to make a decision as to whether this waterfall of events that happens across America in the various 50 states with maybe 50 different outcomes because of the unique state provisions that are being applied to federal, uh, to presidential qualifications for the ballot, 
right, come to a head with somebody like Donald Trump that wants a federal decision that's uniform everywhere, not happening, about his entitlement to be on the ballot. And then you've got, well, if if Congress and our very Constitution is based on this uh, division of labor, if you will, between the state and federal government, then when the 14th Amendment and Section 3 was adopted during Reconstruction period in American history, didn't they anticipate, and the answer I think is yes, that the states, through their secretaries of states and otherwise, would implement the 14th Amendment and Article 3? Otherwise, how would it be? I think we all agree on both sides of the aisle that it's not language that's sitting on the Constitution for which we should just ignore it, and it's just surplusage. It's just extra words that just happen. They, they, they needed to fill in, you know, they were printing it in a certain way and they needed to fill in a section. Well, let's just make up a 14-3. No, you have to be able to effectuate that language. And the battle for the U.S. Supreme Court, whether you call it the Colorado case or the main case, is going to be, how do you effectuate 14, our, uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, the disqualification clause? Who does it? If it's supposed to be the states, which, as you can see from my presentation, I believe it is, okay, if it's supposed to be the states, then courts would seem to be the natural place to adjudicate whether someone engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution, because how else do you determine that if it's not the court system? If it's not the court system, and it's a political question, because it sounds like politics, so people think, oh, it's political question doctrine can't take it, take it away from the courts, take it away from the Secretary of State. It goes to Congress. Well, where does it say that in the 14th Amendment? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in the legislative history. It doesn't say that in the text. It's very easy for them to have used a quill pen and written in in the 14th Amendment. And this issue of engagement shall be determined through a trial of his peers or through Congress, through another proceeding. It doesn't say that. They, fi they figured out they, they thought, the framers of that provision, that we were smart enough in 2023 to know what they meant about how to determine who engaged. They, put, they gave us the language, and then they figured out, you guys will figure it out. Don't worry about it. But it's, but it's not what Donald you Trump- You know it when you see it. You, you know, know one when you, see, when you see one. You're an engager. Doesn't say convict. Doesn't say convicted. There was no way, and there's nothing in the legislative history to the contrary, that they wanted America to go through trials, basically military trials of Confederate leaders like Je like Jefferson Davis to have him tried first, branded a con a, an insurrectionist or a rebellious person before determining whether he could stand for office. No, it was a loyalty test. They had many loyalty tests. Now, I've seen one argument, Ben, uh, about, well, it doesn't apply to the president. We've talked about this at length. But this argument is it doesn't apply to the president because the title civil office, civil or military office under the United States has historically meant civil servants and like the postmaster and, 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 not, and not the president. If they wanted to say the president, why didn't they use a big P with their quill pen and write in president? Because the legislative history says they put the catch-all in any office under the United States, civil or military, and that captures the presidency. So that's going to be the fight. It's going to be this federalism fight at the Supreme Court level about the role of the states in doing their job about elections. And that's what Shana, uh, Shana Abello said, the very brave main secretary of state. She's the first one to have ruled that he's off the ballot. Colorado Supreme Court said that the Colorado Michigan uh, the Colorado Secretary of State could 
get around to taking him off the ballot, but that got stayed pending the Supreme Court decision. Shauna's taken him off. He is off, and she's not staying it. She said, I had no choice. I was appointed, appointed by the main legislative house, the, the House and Senate, to be the Secretary of State of Maine. It is my job under the statutes of Maine to look at whether somebody has falsely and fraudulently petitioned to be on the ballot. And I find that Donald Trump committed uh, uh, falsehoods, right? He, he made false statements saying he was qualified when he was not. Now, what was the basis for that? It was the it was primarily the Jan 6 report. You and I, talk, I always look for my copy. We, we talk a lot about the Jan 6 report. That was an exhibit to the petition. And then lastly, I'll leave you on this, Ben, as, as the record goes up as it is to the US Supreme Court. Donald Trump barely participated in the main proceeding. He filed two briefs, one about Colorado and how it impacts Maine, and one just a general opposition brief saying, no, no, speech, I have free speech, First Amendment, you can't take me off the ballot, and you don't have the power to do that, and, and everything else. And, I, and the oath of office is wrong, and I'm not covered under the 14th Amendment, all those arguments. That's it. He did not put on a witness, an expert witness, evidence, testimony, nothing. The other side, expert analysis, uh, testimony, similar overlapping witnesses in the Colorado case on the 14th Amendment, its basis, its background, legislative history, to guide this, the, the, Michi the Michigan, sorry, the main secretary of state in her decision-making. And then, and then lastly, this, they're always, oh, she's a partisan hack. She's a Joe Biden puppet. I don't know about all that. She spent her entire life in public service. She grew up, I did this on a hot take, she grew up in a house that didn't have running water or electricity until the fifth grade. Father's a carpenter, mother was a nurse, okay? She's self-made in, in every material way, but has devoted her entire life to public service, starting in the Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, ACLU, and, uh, and the Holocaust Museum director in Maine. And she was in the house as a member of the House of Maine until she was appointed and selected by her peers to be the Secretary of State. Donald Trump just doesn't like that we have a state-by-state -state process to uh, to guide our election uh, our election processes. It that's where it sits, and that is inherently political because people either run for office or they're running on a ticket, and that's just the way it is. And you don't get to throw over that entire constitutional framework because you don't like the results. The question is now, Ben, with Colorado, with Maine, with Michigan, obviously the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in. Are they going to rule? I want to get it from you. Are they going to rule based on the text of the Constitution and its history that the 14th Amendment applies to Donald Trump and it is, and it is a state-by-state -state decision based on how we determine who goes on the ballot? Or are they going to say the states have no role in this and it goes over to Congress as some sort of political question? Or there has to be a conviction of Donald Trump for insurrection or rebellion in order to keep him off the ballot? What do you think? Well, if their state's rights, strict textualists, you'd expect the decision to be very easy and to allow the states to go through this process. I think, though, the Supreme Court, given its current composition, will probably find some way to uh, stay the enforcement of these uh, decisions post uh, election. I don't know if they will cite the Purcell principle or something and saying, hey, we're too close right now and we want to have a longer briefing so you stay on in 2024 and then they'll try to punt the issue. I, I have a very low bar for what I ultimately think the Supreme Court will do on an issue like this 
which shouldn't be novel, but is novel, which I have a different view of what the Supreme Court will ultimately do when it hears the issue of absolute presidential immunity, because the Supreme Court has a body of case law there, and Donald Trump's arguments cut directly against what the Supreme Court's view is of Article 2. And because There's also a self-preservation aspect to Donald Trump's absolute presidential immunity argument, which if you take it to its logical conclusion, Trump can take away the jobs of Supreme Court justices and be absolutely immune from that as well. I think the Supreme Court justices kick in on their selfish gear on the absolute presidential immunity argument. Unfortunately, I think they try to find some way to procedurally not get at the issue here of uh, in Colorado as well as um, as well as Maine, but 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 we'll see. I'm 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 interested. Uh, the, right. the, I think he stays on the ballot. I think you're right. The self preservation I thought you were going to talk about was John Roberts trying to preserve the Supreme Court and its legitimacy because all of these things put them. No, I went out. That went out the door and died. <laughs> there is not. But I think they keep him on the ballot. And and again, politically, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. If Joe but Joe Biden's going to win, I want him to win in 50 states, um, which he's going to. He's not going to win all 50 states, but I want him to win with with him on the ballot. And I don't want to make Donald Trump a bigger martyr than he's already and and a grifter than he already is. And if he gets permanently banned from two and he's down to 48 states. It'll just activate his base in a way that you know I don't really know what the outcome is going to be. I don't need them more motivated to vote for him and or to give him more money than they already are. So there is the flip side to this. From yeah. and that's just a pure selfish political analysis having nothing to do with the law. You know, but I don't. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you I, the part where I disagree with you about the the activating his base part. And I saw the New York Times do an article about that too. And and, and frankly. I'm not I'm not criticizing your logic there though Popak in in saying it but to me I just think we shouldn't give a crap about what people who say the most hateful and disgusting things and watch the insurrection and think it's a great thing and want to overthrow our democracy if if they want to be active and engaged the time needs to be spent just calling out how horrific the underlying conduct is, and and that's what we're going to be spending our time on. Just one point to make about the um, about the decision reached by the Secretary of State in Maine. She wrote, uh, given the compressed time frame, the novel constitutional questions involved, the importance of this case, and the impending ballot preparation deadlines, I will suspend the effect of my decision until the Superior Court rules on any appeal or the time to appeal under the applicable right. the section. Main, the main superior court, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, main, the main superior court, correct. Yeah. So there's a, a, the enforcement of that's temporarily, I would view that as being temporarily stayed. There's five mm-hmm. days from the date of that order to uh, appeal basically the decision and go through the, the superior court process. Finally, let's just talk briefly about Judge Eileen Cannon. She's yet to issue on a very, it's a pretty simple case, right, Popak? I mean, did Donald Trump willfully take national defense information? Did he take it? Was it national defense information? Did he have the intent? That's it. It's a very simple, like you don't get much more of a simple case than that. But where you have Judge Eileen Cannon, all of the uh, delay tactics that have been shut down in other courts, Judge Eileen Cannon embraces that and 
has created a, a, a such a mess of a docket. I'm not even sure that she fully understands her own dates and deadlines because they just make no sense. Like you don't schedule a SEPA Section 5 hearing in a case that involves SEPA. Like that's the main hearing. So you're setting a, a trial setting conference on March 1, which she has set. Um, well, she, the trial is set for May 20th of 2024. There's a status conference on March 1 to evaluate where everyone's going to be at that time. But you haven't set the SEPA deadline, so there's no way really the May 20th, 2024 date can go if you have a normal briefing schedule for SEPA. And so, so there's there's a lot that doesn't make sense. She also has the party submitting the jury questionnaires two days before uh, that March 1, 2024 status conference hearing. Um which then if you have disputes over the questionnaire, which they will, and then it goes into kind of the canon void, if you will. I mean, wh wh where are you? You know, you're going to be arguing the questionnaire through May based on the way canon handles her docket. You know, she hasn't issued an order yet. I mean, think about that. She hasn't issued an appealable order yet. She's just been issuing these paperless scheduling orders, just moving and shuffling deadlines. So there's been nothing that Jack Smith can actually like appeal. There's no appealable order. Um, so, but I, I guess Donald Trump wants to, to change that. I mean, so Donald Trump is asking Judge Eileen Cannon to allow Trump's attorneys to be present at the SEPA Section 4 hearing, which is a private hearing that always takes place between a federal judge and the government. It's ex parte in camera, uh, SEPA Section 4 hearings. Um, where the judge looks at very sensitive national intelligence, and then it's decided whether or not this information should be turned over to the defendant under the SEPA protective order, which is a heightened protective order under Section 3 of SEPA, or whether it's so sensitive it could be withheld. Um, and then like some sort of summary is, is, is put in its place or some replacement of the document. So the defendant's not deprived of their Sixth Amendment rights to have all the evidence, get all the evidence, have their due process rights met, and then uh, have a public trial. But it also protects our national defense information. And you don't want defendants to criminal defendants and classified information case to try to blackmail the government and say that if you don't dismiss the case against me, I know all of these national secrets and I'm going public with them at my time of trial. So, but Donald Trump saying, yeah, I want my lawyers to be present at that SEPA section four hearing, which to me is so, it's just over, it's just, it's just strategically, it's strategically the dumbest thing and, and, and always count on Trump's lawyers to do that because Look, I'm being somewhat hyperbolic here. You do have your lawyer at the hearing. You you have Judge Cannon there, <laughs> and I'm saying I'm saying that sarcastically, but but you know you get what I mean. You have Judge Eileen Cannon and Jack Smith at a hearing where Jack Smith saying that there are certain national defense information that the United States government wants to withhold from Donald Trump, and Judge Cannon would be the one to make the decision about whether that should go uh, be produced to Donald Trump, like like nuclear codes and war plans and things like that. Now, if Judge Cannon rules that something should go to Trump and Jack Smith disagrees, then Jack Smith gets an immediate appeal to the 11th Circuit under under SEPA's. In, that, that is one of the areas by statute 
as we were talking earlier, where it would be viewed as a collateral order and you can, unseep of these orders can be immediately appealable to the 11th Circuit, which is the circuit that supervises Judge Cannon. But, but Trump wants to go a step further and have his lawyers be there at that meeting. And, and then Jack Smith's like, that, may, that would defeat the whole purpose of the meeting being between the government and the judge if you put your lawyer at that meeting. This is national defense information that we're trying to withhold. That's the purpose of SEPA Section 4. And that's why Congress passed this uh, this SEPA statute. But we're going to see more conduct like this by Donald Trump also. He recently filed a, an, another brief uh, about uh, not wanting to disclose his advice of counsel uh, defense uh, early the same way that uh, uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin ordered that Donald Trump provide his advice of counsel defense a little bit before the trial, just because when you assert advice of counsel, it becomes a waiver of the attorney-client uh, privilege. So that's he's why dead. he's dead on that argument. He's got not in front of not in front of Cannon though. No, maybe, but 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 just to remind everybody, just I'll pick up there and then I'll go backwards. Advice of counsel is is Evan Corcoran, who's already cooperated with the government, had his attorney-client privilege stripped away from him, or Donald Trump has, had to testify to a grand jury in Mar-a-Lago and otherwise, had to turn over 50 pages of single-spaced handwritten notes about his conversations with Donald Trump. Um, Christina Bob, same. Jennifer Little, probably. These are the lawyers that he relied on. And all their, and all their testimony is, we told him, we told him that he needed to turn this over to the National Archives. Certainly, we told him after the subpoena was issued and before the search warrant was issued, I don't think he has a legitimate, uh, he could ever have a legitimate, reasonable um, reliance on, def on defense counsel, especially ones that are in the crosshairs themselves. On your other issues, I, th I still take away the remarkable observation <laughs> that in all of the cases in DC and in Florida, you know, it's not being argued by Donald Trump, either in a filing or otherwise, we don't need SEPA procedures. We don't need a SEPA uh, room or facility to be built for me because I already, with a magic wand, declassified all of those documents. Why Why are we even talking about SEPA? Nobody believes that. Even Aileen Cannon doesn't believe that. That's why she's at least going through the motions of having a SEPA procedure. Certainly Judge Chutkin and the, and the uh, Department of Justice Special Counsel's Office doesn't believe that. And that's why they're being that's why they've identified the District of Columbia, Classified Information Procedures Act type material that they're planning to use against him there, just as they're using it here. So let's put a, put away the charade for all of Donald Trump's followers that he that he um, declassified everything on the way out of the White House. This is why we're even talking about SEPA. This is why my my podcast partner has become a SEPA expert in front of my very eyes. It's because it's because these are real issues that have to be determined. And I got and another news flash for Donald Trump's lawyers. If they think because of all of these little battles that they're winning, or they think they're winning with uh, Aileen Cannon, if if they're wrong that she's going to delay the trial, and she says, "Well, gentlemen, we've got it all done. Uh, I'm a little bit late. We're going to do some things in March that I should have probably done about six months ago, but it's all all done now." And so trial starts on May the whatever. They're not going to be able to raise their hands and say, oh, "Your Honor, we really thought we had this in the bag, and we haven't been preparing, even though it's four months, five months away." Again, back to my initial uh, theories posited, they are outmatched, outresourced, outthought, and outprepared. And they're not going to be able to throw their, themselves in the mercy of the court. Certainly not Judge Chutkin. 
And I'm not sure how you make that argument in good faith to even to Canon to say, well, we really thought we weren't going to go to trial in May, Your Honor. So, you know, we haven't been doing anything. They ha- they have, they better be, but we know they're not, working night and day for both those trials, let alone the trial in January for E. Jean Carroll again, because they need to be ready for trial, having been given terabytes of information, documents, discovery, witness statements, and the like and videos. They need to be ready. Does anybody on this podcast on either side of this camera believe that Donald Trump's lawyers are where they should be in preparation for trials about uh, Donald Trump's liberty at the beginning of January? (laughs) No, they're not ready. You know, so we're going to keep you posted what's going on with Judge Cannon, what's going on in D.C. Just if you're kind of all keeping track, you got E. Jean Carroll, civil trial, January 16th, 2024. Right now you have the Manhattan District Attorney criminal trial, March 25th, 2024. Right now you still have the Washington, D.C. federal criminal trial uh, before Judge Tanya Chuckin, March 4th, 2024, although we think that will probably get delayed by 45 to 60 days. We'll see how that plays out with the Manhattan District Attorney case. Then you've got the Florida Southern District case. Judge Eileen Cannon scheduled for May 20th of 2024. Those are some of the immediate uh, dates and deadlines. Also to put on your radar, closing arguments in the New York Attorney General civil fraud uh, case uh, against Donald Trump will take place in kind of early-ish to mid-January. We should get a final ruling by Judge Arthur and Goron, I would predict, before February 1st. So right around the time Donald Trump's going to get hit with a massive verdict in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, we will also be getting a verdict that I think Popak and I think will be between $500 million to a billion dollars by uh, Judge and Goron in New York. So those are my closing words to wish you all a happy New Year's. Popak, your closing words to the legal AFers out there. Can't I cannot express in words how excited, how relieved I am that 2023 is over with the work that we've done, but how excited I am to be with you and your brothers and Karen to cover what's going to happen for democracy and justice in 2024. I can't wait to get started. Thank you, everybody, so much. Happy New Year's. We're so grateful for all of you, the Legal AFers. Want to thank all of our team here at the Midas Touch Network, at Legal AF, all of our hosts, all of our staff, Salty, Jeremy, everybody. Great, uh, great work. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all the Midas Mighty. Thank you so much. And uh, we will see you in 2024. We're in this together. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.